You are listening to a message from Southwood Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Our passion is to experience and express grace. Join us. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're considering this year what Christmas means to me, how the birth of Jesus impacts us personally um, as we see it through the eyes of real people in the nativity story. Mary helped us see the the life-changing reality of God's grace reaching down to us. Joseph helped us see how Jesus interrupts our lives and and meets our biggest need. This morning, we have not merely an interruption, but an invasion. Kingdoms clash as the true king is born. That's what happens at Christmas. Notice as I read in Matthew 2, the markedly different responses to the arrival of the King, King Jesus. Um, God gives us this historical account for our instruction that we might know Him and love Him and trust Him. So let's read it with that sense of expectation this morning. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the King, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Soften our hearts that they would not remain hardened but may be molded to yours. Subdue our wills, King Jesus. We ask it in your name. Amen. The story that we just read is a story about kings, not perhaps the, the three kings that we usually sing about this time of year, but about Herod the king and Jesus 
the king. And, and it gives us, in that sense, a unique view into seeing that Christmas means the true king invading our world. Now, you may wonder, why when this baby is born, do people start talking about kings so much? I mean, is, is his father a king? Did he, was he born with a crown on his head? Like, where where'd the king stuff? No, neither of those things is where it comes from. But, but remember that when we talk about the Messiah coming into the world, the, the primary Old Testament understanding of this, this promised one, this, this person who will come, is that he would be a king. We just read it from one prophet, but many said it that way. He would be the anointed one. It's what the word Messiah means. The one in David's line who would rule justly. Finally, a king who would really do it right. So it's, it's the true king who's invading our world with unrivaled supernatural power. You see already in this account, his star, it says, moves to announce his birth and, and, and point out his location. He owns stars. There, there's no other king like this one. And as in any good story, when the king arrives, loyalties are exposed quickly. The true king will require complete allegiance, right? Utter submission, wholehearted devotion. And so the, the presence of the king as he shows up demands a response from everyone else. We know what this looks like. Just, just think of the Lion King, right? When, when Simba comes back to Pride Rock to claim his rightful throne, Scar and his treachery is exposed and you're either with him or you're against him, right? You may picture the return of Aragorn to the throne of Gondor and the, the honor that the true king is due. Perhaps you think of the response required in the, in the Black Panther movie after rivals fight to the death over the waterfall for the kingship of Wakanda. When one wins, it's either long live the king or flee for your life, right? It's one or the other. I want to show you a quick clip from one other movie where the kingship is at stake. Robin Hood tells the story of King Richard who has left England. The king has departed and Richard's brother John has claimed the throne in his place and he does not appreciate those who are still loyal to King Richard. He's rounding up and eliminating loyalists including Robin Hood. The traitors to the crown must die. Traitors to the crown. That crown belongs to King Richard. Long live King Richard. Long live King, King Richard. Richard. Enough. I am king. 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 Ah, off with his head. I showed you that clip primarily for that one memorable response from would-be King John. I am king, king, I am king, 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 king. It sounds a lot like Herod's response to the presence of another king. 
more importantly for us this morning, it, it sounds a lot like our response to the presence of another king. I am king, king, king. I want you to remember that. We're going to talk about our own hearts more later. But just consider briefly how our hearts resist being moved off the throne. At the age of three, that cry may sound like, It's mine! Mine! At 13, it may sound like a passionate, That is so unfair! At 33, it may sound like a a reasoned, Well, I've got to do what's best for me. But at every stage, while we sound different, We like to be in control, to maintain our own comfort, to be the one in charge of ourselves, to be the king, king, king with no rival, don't we? So did Herod. We know from even secular histories that Herod was a ruthless and very defensive king. He even had his wife, And three of his sons murdered when he sensed a threat to his rule. Herod would do anything to keep power. He sought to sideline or eliminate anyone who threatened his control and his comfort, even and especially Jesus. Herod had ruled on behalf of Rome over the Jews for 30 years or so at the time the Magi show up in this story. Notice how Matthew makes sure that you see the awkward tension that's here in this passage and what it's really about. Verse 1, in the days of Herod the king. And then verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, wouldn't Herod have sufficed the second time? It's to Herod the king that the Magi ask the question in verse 2, walking up to the king, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? You, You sense the tension there? You don't ask that to the king. Herod is troubled at the very thought that the king has been born and it's not him. He's vulnerable, he's afraid, enraged, we find out. And all of Jerusalem with him, we're told. Not just the one king, but but all those in the central city, wielders of religious and political power, they seem to be unnerved at the thought of something upsetting the system, of their control being taken. It's interesting, none of those who gather to tell Herod where the Messiah will be born are recorded as going to find him, to worship him. I mean, this was supposed to be something they were all planning for, longing for, but this was a good thing, right? But Herod, in particular, understands what kingship means. If he is king, I am not. And and the coming of the Messiah, the birth of the anointed one, in a way clearer than at any other time, means the true king is here. Everyone has to respond to that. 
Herod's response, his decision is war. Taking up his sword in a desperate fight, trying to use his power to maintain his power, Herod seeks to find this newborn king in order to kill him, doesn't he? When he slips through his hands, at the end of this passage we read, we find out later in the chapter that Herod orders young boys killed, likely dozens of boys under the age of two, in an effort to get the one. He lies, he abuses power, anything it will take. And his sin, as with all sin, is is irrational. Have you ever wondered what Herod thought he would accomplish in this? What dots was he connecting? I mean, if the Jewish prophets are not to be believed and Yahweh is no true God, then why bother? Why be worried about these prophecies of a king? On the other hand, if if he is the true God and the prophets are right about a promised king, then Herod is picking the wrong fight. Is he so prideful that he thinks he could outfox or overpower such a sovereign God at work for centuries to send this king? Either way, it doesn't make any sense, does it? But Herod takes Option one, when the true king shows up, he wages war against him to resist the true king, to eliminate him from his life so that he can maintain his control and comfort. There's another option in this passage when the true king arrives and it's pictured by the magi. They worship the king. Look at the contrast Matthew makes with with Herod as he describes them. They're they're searching for this newborn king genuinely in order to drop their swords and kneel before him in worship. Journeying, in fact, likely for several months and, and hundreds of miles to find him. That's why, of course, to make sure we're being accurate this morning, we're not in a manger in Bethlehem with three kings but rather a year or so later, probably, at a home with likely an entourage of travelers, if you're going to go that far, who bring three gifts, which is why we sing about three kings sometimes. But they are magi. They're wise men um, of some kind, probably from a Persian court. Uh, Those who would have served and advised kings. But these wise men with limited knowledge apparently of Hebrew scriptures journey to worship the king of the Jews. It's no exaggeration to say that they have shaped their lives around this king, investing considerable time, expense, and effort just to find him. So it should be no surprise that that their joy is instantaneous and overwhelming when they find Jesus. Verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You get the idea? They're happy. They're excited. They're, in fact, overcome with emotion, the words are telling us. And they're delighted to worship this king. That, That remarkable response is why Almost every artist for hundreds of years painted his own version of the adoration of the Magi. 
they bow before this king. They offer him gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The types of gifts they would have offered a king. Certainly the best and finest gifts they had to offer that their court would have known for anyone. And then verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Maybe that fact seems old hat to you now since you've heard the Christmas story before, but do you notice how their loyalty has changed already, just like that? Herod, the the king of this whole region, the one they came looking for answers to, has, has told them to come back and report to him, but when the true king arrives, they immediately obey his directives instead. Their lives continue to be shaped around this new king. Wholehearted worship, not just with their lips, but with their lives, their hearts, their treasures. They eagerly submit their emotions, their wills, themselves to this young child king. Indeed, the prophets seem to be right already. The nations, the Gentiles shall come to your light. And it's happening right as he's born. What a king. Two contrasting responses to his arrival laid out for us here. War or worship? Taking up the sword or or laying down the sword? And the question, of course, is how do we respond to King Jesus? It's a pretty simple message, nice Christmas message. Any nice pastor would say, so let's all respond by worshiping Jesus, stand together and sing, and we'll be through. I'd like to do some application first. Um, That's what we usually call um, this part of the sermon, but... We might as well skip to calling it meddling today. That's all right with you. Or, or better yet, perhaps let's just be honest and say this is invading. It's what Jesus is doing. I'll be honest with you that I have hated the rest of this sermon all week. So you can join in now. Um, unless you've gotten really good at hearing God's word and walking away unchanged. See, I'm just fine at seeing this contrast, Herod versus the Magi, and and realizing, yeah, I choose to worship Jesus. That's that's my response. Um, I'm fine with that. What I don't appreciate is being exposed as more like Herod and Jerusalem with him many days than I am like the Magi. The truth is, we don't do kings well period. And this baby that we rejoice in at Christmas, this newborn king, is is not just another king, it's the true king. He is the king of kings. You can't worship this king and call your body, your money, your retirement, your home, your kids, or your time your own anymore. They're his. Everything is his. For his kingdom, he's the king. How's that for a a beachhead of the invasion? It's all his. Y'all, sometimes without even realizing it, 
we can sideline or eliminate Jesus from any area of our lives where he might threaten our control or comfort. Um, I control myself. I define myself. I provide for myself. It's almost the air we breathe these days. Individual autonomy. Self-rule. I am king! 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 We may laugh at that. But we must not settle for that that's in our hearts. If you think an invasion of privacy is uncomfortable, try an invasion of autonomy. That, that's what King Jesus is. He says he's king, so you're not. How? How, how about in, in what your heart worships? Did you know being Presbyterian is not an excuse for lacking emotion in your heart toward the God who loves you passionately and pursues you sacrificially? If you're not deeply joyful in the arrival of Jesus into this world for you, into your world and your life, it may be because you're content with life under your own rule. It's, it's pretty good. We've been singing this morning about Jesus being a king, in case you didn't notice. Noticed how it's in so many of our Christmas carols? Glory to the newborn king, born a child and yet a king. Let earth receive her king. This, this is Christ the king. And I could keep going. But is, is lip service, outward, nominal worship where it stops for you? Herod has some respect for the Bible, doesn't he? He wants to know uh, where it tells him to look for the king. Seems to think it has something worth listening to. But he thinks, even as he looks there, that he can maintain his own control and authority even while outwardly respecting God's. He sings Christmas songs about Jesus, if you will, but he avoids true worship at all costs. Are you content with an occasional religious formalism, a weekly or monthly worship experience? Or does the king have your whole heart? Has his spirit warmed your heart for the first time maybe recently or, or again after many years of, of coldness with the, the joy of your salvation, the, the glory of your savior king coming for you? What about giving? Because no meddling or invading sermon would be complete without that, right? Perhaps more because it's in our text this morning. The Magi give gifts to this king. While Herod tries only to, to keep for himself and take life from others. Some of us give 10% every month and move on thinking we've done our duty and we can spend our money on our homes, our kids' activities, our vacations, whatever we want, with no thought at all to what Jesus thinks about it. True? Y'all, Jesus is the king. The, the king. This passage reminds us that if he is the true king, he owns it all. 
He's not merely interested in whether you use 10% for him, but truly 100% for him and and for his kingdom. And and not merely money, but the best of, of all of the gifts that you give naturally in so many aspects of your life. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh for you may be your, your precious weekend time, your professional skills, your, your passion for kids. Whatever those gifts are, how can you use the best you have for King Jesus? See, even those first two categories are, are pointing to something much deeper, to a whole life shaped around the king. While Herod works to protect himself and his control from the king, to to keep the king as far away as he can, the Magi are having their, their entire lives reoriented around this true king. Most of us have unbelieving friends who have told us at some point in time that that one of the scariest things about Jesus as they consider the claims of Christ. Is, is that if what he claims is true, he can ask anything of me. Someone said that to you before? That's right, isn't it? And that's scary not just for folks considering following Jesus. It's, it's scary for followers of him too, isn't it? How else do you and I keep Jesus sidelined in other areas of our lives? Watch out, invasion coming every time we choose to sin we pick up the sword and decide we want back on the throne I'd be a better king of my life than Jesus irrational like Herod but all sins are we ignore the king and indulge our anger at our kids our friends, at a level that says, if I don't regain control, I'm not safe. We hear the promise of of eternal pleasures at the right hand of the king and decide to indulge our lusts, to click it again, to meet him or her again, to watch it again, as though only we know how to make sure We are happy. We ignore the king and and work longer hours, avoid rest, and neglect people as if there's no one providing for me or protecting me, so I better do it myself. You see how it's not just the control freaks? who are in our socially acceptable ways, saying, I'm the king, king, king. There's only one king, and I'm not him, and neither are you. But we run around even violently like Herod, harming others to keep ourselves on the throne. We stress ourselves and our kids over things we can't control anyway and pressures to perform that even God doesn't carry for them or us. We run down our co-workers, our spouses, our friends in order to prop ourselves up and feel important. We manipulate others to get our way at a rate that would lead you to believe we won't survive if things don't go according to our plans. Y'all, 
in these and in, in so many other ways, we too seek to sideline or eliminate Jesus from our daily lives. Maybe not for an hour on Sunday, but, but all the other ones. And Jesus invades this morning and says, get off the throne. Put down your sword. Do you see now what it means when we sing joy to the world? The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. It's, it's a little harder than, than you might think. Let every heart prepare him room. Let me get a, give you a, a picture of what needs to happen for my heart to prepare room for the true king. In our queen-sized bed, we can prepare room for a six-year-old who's having bad dreams in the middle of the night by just rolling over a little bit and squeezing her in and trying to go back to sleep and not be bothered by her and pretend she's not there the rest of the night. Works pretty well. However, if, if one of her sisters shows up later then the only option to prepare room for her involves me getting out of the bed and going into her bed to sleep for the rest of the night and saying, this spot that I used to claim as mine is now yours. See the difference between those two ways to prepare room? My heart would prefer to, to roll over a little bit and, and squeeze Jesus in alongside me and my life so that I can stay on the throne and, and he can be important too whenever it doesn't bother me. But preparing Jesus' room is the other picture, really. It means real repentance, real stepping down off the throne, real turning in trust and submission and wholehearted worship and obedience to him. That real repentance can start today, by the way, with, with what you're feeling in your heart, a longing for him to take charge and, and be your king Praying, begging him to, to subdue you to himself. Just, just ask him, just be honest. God, even in the places I still really don't want you to be king, would you please come and rule over me? See, the truth is that, that the king has come. The question is, is how you'll respond. Whether you'll get out and give him the spot that you used to claim? Or, since you're already here in a church, whether all you want to do is just roll over a little bit and, and squeeze him in and, and hope he doesn't keep you up at night or, or bother you anymore. Christmas is an invasion of my autonomy. I'd even take the interruption from last week back when we start talking about that. But listen, it's an invasion of my autonomy for my good. Th this king reigns in our lives unlike any other king, doesn't he? 
subduing us to himself, ruling and defending us, restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. How? How does he do that? With a sword? By laying down his own life. No other king does that. Herod takes lives to defend himself, but Jesus lays down his own life on the cross to defend us. Right there underneath the sign that reads, King of the Jews, he lays down his life. Prophet, tell us, will there there be another king like this? He'll bear no beauty or glory Rejected, despised, a man of such sorrow will cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness, carry our tears. For his people he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel. By his wounds we will be healed. From you, O Bethlehem, small among Judah, a ruler will come, ancient and strong. The true king unlike any other, has come to rule you completely and graciously. Won't you lay down your sword and bow before King Jesus and and offer yourself and all that you are and have to Him? Let's pray. Jesus, we know no other king like this. And we confess that we need a king. And we don't like it. But when there's no king, we do whatever is right in our own eyes. And that's really dangerous for us. We confess that you know better. You love us better. You have loved us fully in giving yourself for us. And so we worship you. We lift your name up and we ask that you would so work in our hearts that that wouldn't just happen now in a, in a moment, in an hour of worship, but, but that you would make that in every moment of every day reality. Subdue us to yourself and give us joy in a king who loves us and lays down his life for us. Would that delight us this Christmas? Uh, Invasions are not comfortable, but would what you accomplished when you invaded this world give us eternal joy and great cause for celebration, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us online at southwood.org.